It's Thursday, June 20th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Nexium leader Keith Raniere has been found guilty on all charges related to the sex cult he started under the guise of a self-help group. Among the charges he was found guilty of were forced labor conspiracy, sex trafficking, and child porn charges. Pilar Melendez, reporter for the Daily Beast, was in the courtroom for the verdict and joins us for how it all went down and highlights from the trial. Next, a shooting at a California Costco involving an off-duty police officer and an intellectually disabled man is sparking debate about proper use of force. Two different stories are emerging about what went down in the food tasting line at Costco when the off-duty cop discharged his weapon and it resulted in the death of Kenneth French. His parents were also shot and are still in the hospital. Anna Fry, reporter for the LA Times, joins us for this complicated story. Finally, while the fast food industry as a whole has been flat, Chick-fil-A has experienced double-digit growth. It has moved up the ranks from seventh largest restaurant chain in the U.S. to become the third. While the company is not without its challenges, people love it for the waffle fries and their legendary customer service. Laura Riley, the business of food reporter for the Washington Post, joins us for why Chick-fil-A is so popular. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The evidence proved that Ranieri was truly a modern-day Svengali. His crimes and the crimes of his co-conspirators ruined marriages, careers, fortunes, and lives. Joining us now is Pilar Melendez, reporter for the Daily Beast. We finally got a verdict in the Nexium trial. This was concerning the founder, Keith Ranieri. He was positioned as his con man who stole money and created this harem of sexual slaves who got branded with his initials and he kept them in line through blackmail. He claimed he was only helping his followers reach personal fulfillment by breaking down emotional barriers. But in the end, he was found guilty on all charges, which included racketeering, keeping people against their will, child pornography charges, all sorts of stuff. You were there in the courtroom. Tell us how Keith Raniere reacted when the verdict came down. The verdict came down a little less than five hours after the jury began deliberating, which is pretty phenomenal because there was seven counts that he was being accused of, and each count had about numerous subparts in, in between. So they really decided quickly that he was going to be convicted of all of these. But as the foreman was reading all of the guilty pleas that the jury found, Keith Rainier was staring directly at the judge, completely emotionless. I would say he was a little bit redder than normal, but he <laughs> did not look into the rest of the people in the courtroom at all. He was standing directly at the judge, did not make any movement, any facial expression. Meanwhile, everyone in the courtroom, including some of the prosecutors, were very emotional. There were a bunch of former Nexium members that were watching the verdict being read that were crying hysterically. Some notable members, Mark Vicente, who testified and was also a top recruiter for Nexium, he started crying as the verdict started being read. Catherine Oxenberg, who is the Dynasty star and also her daughter India, was a DOS slave and a former Nexium member. She was inside the courtroom after when the verdict was being read. Barbara Boucher, who was a former girlfriend of Keith Rainier and a former Mexican member, she broke down, had to hold the edge of one of the pews, started crying. So it was a very emotional scene inside the courtroom. But again, Keith Rainier did not make one movement. Yeah, I mean, this was a six-week trial, and we got a lot of 
insight into what was going on. There was blackmail. People were being branded with his initials. He kept them in line. Uh, we heard the last time you were on with us when they finally went down to his compound and busted him and he try to hide in another room and force some of the other women to try to cover for him. You mentioned that Mm -hmm. there was some action that happened outside of the courtroom after this. What what happened there? The verdict was read in about five to 10 minutes. The judge quickly took the jury out so we could go outside and break the news. A lot of the Nexium members were really emotional, crying right outside. They were hugging each other. They were saying that Keith Rainier is done and calling him an asshole. And towards the end of the mass exodus outside the courtroom, Keith Rainier's lawyer, Mark Agnifilo, walked outside and actually approached Barbara Boucher, who again is a former Nexium member and one of Keith Rainier's ex-girlfriends, and congratulated her and said, I hope this helps. And she started crying and said, thank you so much. And if you have time, I would love to talk to you. And Mark Agnifilo said, with the government's permission, he would love to speak to her and hear more about what she went through, which is a pretty powerful exchange. One, because Mark Agnifilo, being his defense attorney, basically admitted during the closing arguments that Keith Raniere is a repulsive man. He said those exact words that Keith Raniere was disgusting. I was surprised by that. Yeah. It was a weird closing argument because it was basically admitting that his client is gross, but it was a smart closing argument because after six weeks, truly relentlessly lurid testimony, he couldn't deny that Keith Raniere was doing weird stuff in upstate New York. He had to be honest with the jury. And I think that him approaching Barbara Boucher at the end and congratulating her and saying, I hope this helps, I think is just him recognizing that regardless if he was defending Keith Raniere, regardless if they both maintain his innocence, he was doing some weird stuff in upstate New York. Yeah. Now, so this whole group, this Nexium group, it was started in the 90s. It was supposed to be a self-help thing. It got a lot of high-profile people involved. Allison Mack from the WB series Smallville was one of the most notable people. Claire Bromfman, who was the heiress to the Seagram's yeah. fortune, helped finance a lot of the activities here. And in the end, a lot of this surrounded the news of this uh, alleged sex cult. It was called DOS, where Allison Mack herself would recruit people to be Rainier's sex slaves, things like that. Tell us some of the highlights that we found out throughout this trial. We've been covering this on the podcast, but there's just so much that came out during the the testimony. It was truly incredible. I feel like every day of testimony was something that A, you've never heard about before, or B, you couldn't even conceive what was happening. Not too far. I mean, I live in New York City, and this only happened a couple of hours away, which is insane to think about. But some major highlights, three former DOS slaves testified. Each had a similar story. They were recruited by a female Nexium member when they were in a point of feeling really low. A lot of them described they were very overwhelmed and stressed out when they were approached. They were told that it was a women's empowerment group. Two of the three of them, one notably being Nicole, who was the subject of the sex trafficking charge that Keith Raniere was convicted of. She described a very horrible scene where Keith Raniere asked her if she trusted him and she felt like she had to say yes, even though she testified that she really didn't. And he took her into a room, tied her on top of a table, tied her hands and legs with a cloth and walked around her commenting while somebody went down on her. She's also described that she was blindfolded with two blindfolds, one so tight that it made her eyes hurt. And she didn't know who was in the other room. Later, she found out through prosecutors that it was Camilla who Keith Raniere got convicted of having underage sex with her. He was convicted of the child pornography charge, but 
We found out during the trial that Camilla was being manipulated. She had to go down on the slave that testified. She started next exam at the age of 15. It was just, there's just a lot. Yeah. Ranieri returns to court on September 25th for sentencing. How That's much right. time is he facing? He's facing 20 years to life. I was talking to Mark Agnifilo, who is Keith Ranieri's attorney. He told me that they aren't, wouldn't be surprised if the maximum sentence was granted. The judge seems pretty adamant about harsh sentences in terms of Nexium and is offering no leniencies to Keith Ranier and any of his former co-defendants, including Allison Mack, who's supposed to be sentenced in September as well. So we'll see. Pilar Melendez, reporter for The Daily Beast. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. We were like two hours away and we heard gunshots. We heard the first one and then we heard six more. And everybody started running out the store. I was grabbing my wife and the daughter and putting them in front of me and trying to get them out the store. Joining us now is Hannah Fry, reporter for the L.A. Times. We're going to be talking about a complicated story about a Costco shooting in California. There was an off-duty police officer who says he was assaulted by another man named Kenneth French. He said that he fell to the floor, was knocked unconscious when he came to. He still felt threatened and he discharged his weapon shooting French and his mother and his father. Kenneth French himself was killed there on the scene. But this is sparking a lot of debate about use of force, whether the off-duty police officer reacted appropriately. Tell us what happened. What happened during this altercation at Costco? Really, there's different narratives as to what actually occurred that hasn't completely come out yet. And uh, officials are saying that video from Costco might actually shed some light on what really did occur between these two men. But what we know so far is there was some sort of altercation in line while they were waiting for samples. The officer was in front of the Frenches in line for a sample, and some sort of altercation ensued between the two. The officer's attorney is alleging that the officer was knocked to the ground and was knocked unconscious in this attack. And he was holding and, his one and a half year old son at the time, which is important. He felt that he was threatened and his son might have been threatened. He apparently fell to the ground with his son. And so when he came to the attorney alleges, you know, he was his quote was, you know, he was fighting for his life. He wanted to protect his son. And so he opened fire. Now, civil rights attorney Dale Gallipo, he is representing the French family and he's alleging that actually there was a pause in time from the initial attack or shove, whatever it may have been. The officer identified himself as Los Angeles Police Department. The father stepped in between the two men and that's when the firing began. So really, there's a lot of unknowns at this point. Do we know what the nature of the disability of Kenneth French was? I have seen in some reporting that they believe him to be schizophrenic and that he was taking medication and he either changed medication or was off his medication at the time, which might have altered his behavior. Family members have said that French had some sort of an intellectual disability, though they didn't go into great detail about what exactly that meant. The attorney for the family has said that he did suffer from some sort of disability and was on medication. His medication was changed and that may have caused him to become a little agitated that evening. This is all according to the attorney. But really, you know, exactly what he was suffering from isn't clear. A family has said that he has the capacity of a teenager. They described him as a gentle giant who was not prone to violence. What are the laws and rules surrounding off-duty police? It's very similar to private citizens that have firearm permits, and, and this is all in California. What are some of those rules that relate to this? 
self-defense law is basically the same for off-duty police, just like private citizens that have firearm permits in California. They're allowed to fire their weapon in self-defense in the event of an imminent attack. And if there's no ability to retreat from the situation, that's what experts have been telling us. The real question is really whether a reasonable person in the situation of a shooter would have believed they were under attack and threatened with death or serious bodily injury. Now, some experts have told me that if the officer was knocked unconscious, that could be enough to justify the use of force. And this is where the video will help to shed a lot of light on their The attorney for the family, Dale Gallipo, had said that he just really thinks that the officer was mad that he got pushed and was never really under any real threat. And they're also alleging that the family is just angry that if this was any other person, not an officer, they would already be arrested and being charged with murder of Kenneth French. And then he also, like I said, he shot the parents, too. They got caught I don't know if it was in the crossfire or I don't know, you know, we don't know these details, but Kenneth French's mother is still in critical condition. She was in a coma for some time. His father is awake now, but he's still recovering from his injuries as well. They've been described to me as very serious injuries. As of this morning, I believe uh, Kenneth French's mother was still in a coma. So she is in very serious condition. That video is going to be very instrumental in how this all gets decided. There's two ongoing investigations. This goes to like a police commission panel that is going to decide whether the use of force was warranted or not, right? That's correct. Yeah, the police commission, uh, which is a five-member commission, will ultimately have say over whether the use of force was justified, not in terms of the criminal investigation, but in terms of the administrative one that the LAPD is conducting. Yeah, it's definitely a story we're going to keep following. Hannah Fry, reporter for the LA Times, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. People in their mid-20s to mid-early 30s eat out more than any other group. But Gen X, when we were that age, ate out slightly more than millennials are. But still, as we know, the millennials, it's a huge demographic bubble. And they largely are not really fast food fans as much as previous generations. Joining us now is Laura Riley, business of food reporter for The Washington Post. We're going to be talking about Chick-fil-A. I mean, the fast food industry as a whole is is flat. It's not necessarily doing too well, but Chick-fil-A has been growing at a crazy rate. They just moved up in the rankings from the seventh largest restaurant chain in the United States to become the third just behind McDonald's and Starbucks. Tell us a little bit about why they're growing so much. It's not so much the number of units. They've had kind of slow and steady growth in terms of the number of stores, but the per-person sales at each store is remarkable. I mean, it's several times more than the average sale at a KFC, say, or some of the other big fast food giants. They had $10.46 billion in American store sales, and each location brought in about $4.6 million in 2018. I mean, that's huge. Like you said, more than three times than KFC. So they're dominating this chicken market. Absolutely. And there's some kind of upstarts that are nipping at their heels. There's PDQ out of Florida. I mean, there's some other chicken oriented. I mean, Wendy's does a real good business in terms of their chicken sandwich, but they really have a confluence of wonderful things that people identify with, I guess, and that make people incredibly devoted to them. 
Well, what's happening with the fast food industry as a whole while they're growing? What's happening to the industry? It's been a really slow period. And usually the restaurant market is kind of a, a little bit the canary in the coal mine for the larger market. And usually kind of in advance of a, of a bear market, restaurants will contract or growth will really slow. So we're at about a 1% growth level right now overall, which is not good relative to the past bunch of years. So for Chick-fil-A to stand out so remarkably, it says something about their, their business model. Tell us a little about how demographics are changing with regards to the way people eat out. Aging baby boomers are eating out less, but millennials are still eating out a whole heck of a lot. They are. So people in their mid-20s to mid-early 30s eat out more than any other group. But Gen X, when we were that age ate out slightly more than millennials are. But still, as we know, the millennials, it's a huge demographic bubble, and they largely are not really fast food fans as much as previous generations. But Chick-fil-A, Chipotle, some of, there are certain brands that resonate with young people a little bit more than others. And for whatever reason, Chick-fil-A is in that camp. Nobody likes to cook right now. Um, Evidently. Chick-fil-A is experiencing all this growth. It has not come without challenges for them. They have made a faith-based decision to remain closed on Sundays, which that makes it a problem for locations in airports or sports stadiums. If it's football Sunday, they're not going to be open. That's like a key thing for those stadiums revenues. They might not be open. And then obviously things that have happened with their management statements in opposition to same-sex marriage. It cuts both directions. Obviously, there's a subset of the dining public who says, I don't like their stance on gay marriage. I'm not going to eat there. But there's also a big swath of, of the United States that identifies with their Christian identity and supports them perhaps more than they might otherwise because of that and because of the stand they've taken. They do a lot of charitable contributions, usually for Christian-oriented charities. So they have a fairly strong and consistent identity. So let's talk about all the things that are going for them. Right across the street from our studios here, just a few months ago, a brand new Chick-fil-A opened and the lines were out the door. There was people camping out trying to win that Chick-fil-A for a year, you know, the first 100 people that get in there just for weeks after the lines were just huge, huge, huge. So it seems like they have three big things going for them, which is that one thing, Chick-fil-A for a year, the waffle fries everybody seems to love. And then most importantly, their customer service is just dynamite. Oh, absolutely. The customer service, it's kind of, it's almost a joke. You know, if you go online, there are all these memes about, you know, oh, I, I need a kidney. Oh, well, let me see, you know, sir, let me see if my employees can <laughs> step in. No, it's, it's, it has this reputation of being incredibly polite and solicitous. And, you know, and I think we all have been to other restaurant chains where that is not the case, where it's not a focus. So right. it's kind of a little bit of a breath of fresh air, that they are super polite, that they really focus on that line speed. You know, McDonald's line speed slowed down significantly and has picked back up, but Chick-fil-A really focuses on how quickly they get you through that line. They'll have people out there with a, an iPad doing iPad ordering concurrently with, you know, order at the counter. So their focus is really about the user experience. They evidently get something like 20,000 requests a year from international cities and municipalities requesting that they come there. So they have not yet taken that leap to go international. And people are really, you know, industry experts are really wondering, is this part of their thought process moving forward? And the way they've grown has been interesting. Rather than just parachuting into a new market, they grow by concentric circles. So they'll build one store and then build one 20 miles away. And so you get those kind of economies of scale and you also build customer knowledge 
about what you're doing. You build in a region that way. So they, they've had an interesting perspective on how to advance and really cover the country. Laura Riley, business of food reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, so fun to be here. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>